Hi, I'm Georgette Pierre, and you're listening to Black and Nuance Podcast, dispelling the idea that Black people are monolithic. dreams of working in the music industry. I wanted to be an A&R rep, an artist and repertoire rep. They were the people responsible for finding the next new act, the next big thing that could flip the industry on its head. Not looking back at it in hindsight, that knack for finding stories, people, places, and or things less traveled always interested me, and I thought I was pretty decent at it. After many redirected attempts, not failed, I decided to stop pursuing a career in music. It just didn't feel attainable. Sexism was real, going along to get along, even if that meant compromising my mind, body, and soul wasn't a choice I was willing to make. It was also very volatile, mean-spirited, and uncertain. The Eagles were loud. I felt like I had to chase people down and be willing to kiss their ass. I'm not saying all people had to do that, and I'm not saying that every industry is exempt from showing their ass either. What I'm saying is the barrier to entry in the music industry looked and felt very different for what I wanted career-wise, and not in an inspiring way. Although I pivoted from the music industry, it didn't stop my younger self from being intrigued with those that had proximity to the business of music. Recorded back in November 2022 when the Grammy nominations were first announced, my next guests Daryl Garrett Jr. and David Giles II had a lot to be excited about. Owners of Waves Manufacturing Publishing, Dave was now officially a Grammy-nominated songwriter on one of the most talked-about albums of 2022. Yes, thank you for being here. Apparently, Dave is recording on the mic that Thriller and Beyonce's Renaissance was recorded on. And as we're recording this, it's what, the 40th anniversary? I'm just thinking about the Thriller dance. So much energy, this conversation, because Waves Publishing, Black-owned publishing company, and talking to you all post getting placement on the Beyonce Renaissance album, which we'll get into. But please first, if you all could introduce yourselves individually and the company overall as a whole. Starting with you, Dave. Absolutely. Uh, what's going on, y'all? First off, uh, my name is Dave Giles II, now Grammy-nominated uh, songwriter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Grammy-nominated songwriter, partner in Waves Manufacturing, 20-year musician, also, you know, work in tech, worked in, engin- worked in engineering, uh, so Webby-nominated engineer as well, so just trying to, uh, you know, shoot for the stars wherever I'm at, so... Yeah, I love that. I'll let yeah. Daryl introduce uh, Waves, the, the Waves brand. Yeah, because I keep forgetting that manufacturing piece. Oh, excuse me, fellas. Yes, Waves Manufacturing. Yes. Daryl. Uh, yes, yes. No, it's totally fine. Thank you. You know, Waves Manufacturing Publishing Company is an independent music publishing company based out of Los Angeles, home of Dave, and I'm based out of New York. And so, you know, but what we're really doing is specializing in music publishing um, the administration of publishing, sync licensing, partnerships with artists, songwriters, producers. Um, and, you know, as you just heard, now our roster does include Grammy-nominated artists. So um, that's a pretty impressive small boutique shop that we've launched here. And so that's a little bit about it. But what makes it special and unique, I think, at its core is, you know, uh, we, we're, we're serious about making sure that any artist that we work with is enhancing, you know, all of their brand but also their their revenue right and, and what does that look like and what is those those conversations and spreads look like so we're glad to be at a table with you know an eclectic roster and let me be very specific an eclectic black roster 
of artists and um yeah that, that's an exciting time for us but it's, it's all it's all based off of day's ip you know so shout out to him okay humble brag Daryl is the Strategic Partnerships Director of a nonprofit in New York City and the Business of Operations of Waves Manufacturing Publishing and really knows his shit when it comes to the business of music, if you couldn't tell. There's a loud intentionality around the what and the why of focusing on black artists because we haven't always received the knowledge, care, or consideration from an industry we've given so much to. I was curious on the journey of navigating blackness in the music industry on so many different levels, and you're coming from the level where where black artists were always stiffed out of publishing revenue, right? And so I would love to at least start from this angle, right? So there's some, some things that happen along the journey. We bump along things along the way. What are some things in, in the journey of you all getting here that you overlooked that end up just being like, oh, sh a sh oh shit moment, like, damn, I really needed that. Um, but you kind of like softly downplayed it, um, you know, as, as you were navigating the things that you were navigating. Daryl, I'll throw to you first. I would say, you know, what was overlooked was really paying attention to the, the stories. When I was younger, you know, I've loved music all my life. And when I think about music publishing, some of the most powerful figures, black figures in music, you know, their their stories are really rooted in publishing and, and ultimately their demise was rooted in publishing, right? So whether we're talking about Sam Cooke, we're, mm. whether we're talking about Michael Jackson, Prince, right? Each of their stories are uniquely tied back to publishing and the more power that they generated, you know, from this space, kind of the, the, the business of music business, um, you know, their, their stories are were connected to that. And I think one of the things I overlooked was what does it mean to have that level of power and what does it mean to have power over, you know, what people are listening to um, and, and what does it mean to have a generational deal, you know, with an artist, um, whether it's a, you know, you're looking now and you see an album like Thriller 40 years later being celebrated biggest album of all time. And, you know, a moment like right now where it's kind of having a renaissance, you know, no pun intended, um, I think that says a lot to the power of music publishing and, and just overall ownership, um, you know, not, not just around its masters and, and, and the performance of the song, but being able to exploit its song fully and, and not an artist, you know, so that, that's pretty much what I think has been overlooked is, is the power of music publishing. A lot of people Absolutely. I would always hear, not even just music business, entertainment business, a lot of artists, creators just didn't know how to mix the business with the creative. And so what were some steps that you overlooked on your journey that proved to be like vital for your success? So one of the things about the independent journey is that in any kind of space, you know, it's all about managing expectations, right? And, and, and so managing them and meeting them, you know, or, or exceeding them. And so in the independent space, I think so much work is done to kind of tamper and to manage expectations but that suppression of expectations is is usually not does not come along with an understanding of what generates revenue in a long term uh, space. So, for instance, in the independent space, like you know, we we put a lot of emphasis on performance, which is key. It is. I mean, you got to get it, get out, get around, and be seen. Put a lot of emphasis on that, but people will kind of tell you up front, hey, don't 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 bet on radio, don't bank on radio. Radio is, is outdated or, you know, radio is, is controlled by, you know, such institutions or whatever. And so, you know, don't bank on it. And what I've learned now, having gone through the independent route and then also now 
navigating through record labels and kind of seeing what it looks like having things play on community radios and national radio, at least overseas. What I learned is that within publishing, your earnings, right? Like each each channel that you that, that, that uh, you can access has a different level of earnings. Mm. So every channel is not the same. And so when you start to realize that it's like, well, if you can even just, just, you know, make it work on community radio and get significant spins on community radio, you can generate revenue as somebody who is not being seen, you know, um, in mainstream channels and things like that. Or, you know, a lot of times we would look for sync licensing opportunities, but did not necessarily understand one, how to, how to position yourself for them. If somebody's not offering it to you, how to kind of, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially just how, how to, to put yourself in the best position for things to be, to be picked up. And, and again, you know, you know that there's a check out there if you sync, but you don't necessarily know that if your song is just in a, in a television broadcast in the background, there's significant money that comes from that happening literally once or twice in a 30 minute broadcast that could earn you more money than a half million streams. Talk to me like I'm two. I always love saying this, like when people were like, yo, help me understand. What is sync licensing for those that are not in that space? Like understanding like what types of licensing exist. Right, so um, sync licensing is essentially when your music is synced to um, any kind of public media. And so then, um, you know, Oftentimes, when I when I kind of talked about, you know, we look for the sync licensing check, um, thinking about things like, oh, there's a campaign that's being booked by a company. And so in that they know that they need music. And so oftentimes the equivalent of like an RFP will go out there to, you know, the people who are in the know um, or who, who essentially manage catalogs, things of that sort that are trusted to say, hey, we need this sound, you know, and so they pull songs that kind of meet that brief. And then if a song, you know, gets picked that's attached to an artist, there's usually, you know, a fee that kind of goes straight out. That fee may buy out all rights. That fee may just, you know, be a a usage fee, but you retain the rights and you're thusly able to um, benefit from, you know, the, the publishing royalties and things like that. And so the thing that's interesting is, you know, like I said, that fee when somebody comes and kind of hand picks your record you know we're talking anywhere from you know 500 bucks to ten thousand dollars just kind of in the lower tier of artistry mm. um well not artistry lower tier of artistry but lower t- lower tier of uh i guess i don't want to say celebrity that sounds weird but i guess a fame yeah because ultimately that really is what what drives the price is how well people know you or how much of a demand there is for you yeah but there's kind of a like a blanket pool of okay Typically anything in this range, if you're not a superstar, is going to be anywhere from, like I said, 500 bucks to $10,000. But having, you know, your song play in the background of a 30 minute broadcast of rugby on the BBC, you know, that connects you $500 in royalties. One play. It almost gives me the same vibe as like voice acting. I did two hours, if that, of work in my home could walk away with $25,000 as a payout. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, wow. Right, and that makes sense as far as like the tier level of like how in demand are you, how big of a name are you, how many, how how um, 
I guess, what's the word that they use? How, uh, not checkered, um, but like when, you know, when they talk about um, people that are in the military and they got all these badges and, and the word I was searching for was decorated, but I had a brain fart. One thing that became clear in our conversation is equating being a recording artist with being an entrepreneur. And the more tools you have in your toolkit, the more advantageous it proves to be. Dave, you had talked about you also kind of learning and being on the, the tech side of things, just really kind of diving in there. You know, for people that are in this industry, there's things, I mean, even just beyond this industry, there's new shit popping up every day, right? What are yep. some tools and tech that is out there that you're using and or would recommend as well? Yeah, so uh, first off, this is going to sound kind of silly, but I want to send a big, big shout out to, and this is not at all paid or sponsored, but a big, big shout out, I wish, to Spotify for Artists. Mm -hmm. um, as with most of these platforms, you know, it's like if you're an, an independent artist, oftentimes you overlook the, the value of them because, you know, maybe you haven't seen the numbers that other, you know, larger artists are seeing or whatever it may be. But what Spotify for Artists is doing for free, completely for free, is telling you, at the most granular level, who is listening to you, where, when, and whether you're seeing, you know, a thousand listens, you know, in a week or, you know, 20,000 listens in a week or a hundred thousand listens in a week, you're able to still in that space. And I, I speak from all of those perspectives <laughs> um, in that in in their dashboard, you're able to see enough that can essentially let you know oh, this happened yesterday. So I can, based on that, that caused a spike. So maybe if I do that again, I can generate another spike. And so the tools, I mean, it's very rudimentary in terms of just, you know, like audience information and streams and, you know, playlists and all of that. But again, even from the, you know, seeing what playlist that, that you're on, you know, everybody wants to get on the editorial playlist. But one of the things that I found in, in, you know, my journey with tracking my records as well as Dave and Sam's records, that's the group that I'm a part of, there are some people whose playlists who are not Spotify, uh, you know, editors and who are not even tastemakers, you know, in the, the typical sense, literally regular folks who just have impeccable taste, who somehow everybody found their playlist. And... There are records that, you know, I can say I can attribute 50,000, 60,000 streams to a playlist from a random person who like works in the lobby at W, you know, <laughs> oh, right. You know what I mean? And again, you, you can figure this out through Spotify for artists. Like you can go in there and see, and then it's like, you know, you see the name and you're like, okay, let me look this person up. You know, I'm not being too creepy of a, 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 a with it, but you know, let me look this person up. Oh, okay. According to LinkedIn, this person is like the receptionist at the hotel, literally. But that says a lot. And then that's still a person that you don't ignore, right? That's then the, the kind of person that you then, if you are seeking to build, again, that engagement and that traction, you reach out to that person and you show them love and you talk to them on social and, you know, all of that. Um, because, again, like, there are tastemakers in every facet of life. Um, and so tools like Spotify for artists allow you to, to, to see not just the big targets, but the regular people, you know, who are still getting you traction just because they love what you do. One more that I'll bring up, 
Um, again, you know, data analytic, analytics is kind of what always gets me excited in this space, but song stats, it's very difficult to kind of track minute to minute or day to day, week to week, unless it's one of the biggest records in the country, how well a song is performing from a sales standpoint, from a Spotify standpoint, if, if you're not the, the lead artist on that song. So if you're a songwriter on it, it's kind of hard to track unless you're getting full transparency from all, all angles. Otherwise, you might not know how well it's performing for 90 days at a time, basically. Basically, after reporting comes out. And so song stats allows you to literally track any record, even if it's not yours. You know, you have to pay, but we're talking like $10 a month, which is a lot, but it's not, you know, again, to, if, if you're in the business of knowing where things are being played, you know, what charts it's on. That's, that's one of the things that they do very well that, you know, you, it kind of goes beyond a Spotify for artists is that now you're seeing with song stats, how it's performing on SoundCloud, if it's on Sirius XM, if it's in Apple Music charts, if it's, and, and, and not just domestic charts, but international charts. And so how many countries are you charting in? Because again, you know, your music may not be jamming in the, in the US, but you're, you're, charting in 50 countries which is a hell of an accolade that could still be leveraged to bring in sponsors or specifically to target sponsors partnerships and booking in certain countries so how did all this lead to dave landing placement on beyonce's renaissance i was taking very intentional steps that would manifest it happening in my opinion. So in this particular moment, I was writing for Honey Dijon's team. Honey Dijon is a uh, DJ and producer from Chicago, uh, who's now a multiple Grammy nominated, uh, you know, artist uh, for producing records on uh, Renaissance and also will very likely be nominated for Best Dance Grammy in 2024 for her own album, Black Girl Magic, which just dropped. So, you know, Honey Dijon is, you know, just a, a show, an event uh, in, in every way that you could possibly imagine. Fashion, impacting fashion, you know, again, DJing, live sets, um, influencing, all of that. And so I have been writing with that team for some time because one of the producers, uh, I guess, in her collective was the A&R that signed my act, Dave and Sam, to Defected Records in the UK. And so even as, you know, our, I guess the, the overall reception of this fusion of this intentional fusion of hip hop and house and R&B and house that, you know, we've been working on, it's kind of tepid um, in the States. We were still moving full steam ahead with this concept because we all just kind of believed in it. And so in the case of that particular Honey project that we were writing towards, you know, the lyrics were inspired by her femininity. The lyrics were inspired by her blackness. The lyrics were inspired by her stature within the queer community. And, you know, just understanding what that represents and how you have to make the connections and make the references and, you know, make people feel seen and heard and, and, and felt. So that was the mission of those records. And so essentially, per my understanding, Honey and I guess uh, B's creative director have a very, very strong relationship. They linked up, they kicked it, they kikied, and all of a sudden, you know, one side says, hey, we love what you're doing, and we want to do some of that uh, for B's project, so, like, you know, let's hear more of it. And records that were being created initially for Honey got shared to B. And so you can imagine that artists like B, 
you know, again, if you're writing to, for, to represent somebody's, you know, just femininity at the highest level, blackness at the highest level, you know, regal stature, you know, within a community. And then of course, music that can be appreciated by, you know, not just, you know, heteronormative cisgender folks, but also the queer community that's right in line with B as well. And so, you know, records that were kind of designed around Honey's IP and Honey's brand, B was the vessel. Oh my gosh. And the song was? Cozy, track two okay. on Renaissance, yeah. I told, I and shout told out to the squad too, because they did uh, Alien Superstar as well. Okay. So, oh, ooh. yes. It's like, uh, okay, uh. And I like house music now. Be more Chicago, yes. you throw it at me. I like it. And I was like, Cozy felt aligned with what, yes. my, what I was expecting. And then I had to get more into the rest of the album outside of everyone else is like, oh my gosh, I love this album. Oh my gosh, this is my, <laughs> I wanted to form my own opinion. So congratulations on that. I think what you all are doing is one empowering artists, right? And so I think the, the music industry has kind of always been set up in a way where it just does not benefit the artists. And so, mm -hmm. you know, why do you think that level of ignorance continues to exist knowingly and unknowingly around publishing, around you know, artists wanting to give their shit up, just like, here, take it. And I'm just like, for, but, you know, I think about the article that I read on Twitter um, about Jason Weaver and Lion King and how mm. his mom was like, don't take $2 million, get royalties. And had his mom told him not to do that, he would have only got this. And he's made way over the $2 million from royalties because he was like, Disney's going to make so much more money off of this forever forever like that's forever money right and so you know how are you all empowering artists but, but also the first part of that question why why are artists constantly just giving their publishing rights away in exchange for just like quick money especially black artists it feels like i mean i think uh, again kind of just the framework of it being that you know publishing is the business of music business and i think with that being said the reason why a lot of artists you know quite frankly don't commit as much time as they should to the business of the music business is because first, right, it's positioned to artists as a front-end industry, meaning that what's sexy and glamorous in the music industry is being in front of the stage, in front of something in some kind of way where there's a, another pathway, right? And, and so a big part of that pathway is breaking down the how our songs constructed, how are folks making revenue from the, a song? And, and again, just the notion of publishing is rooted in we're not here to exploit an artist. We're here to exploit a song. And the more it's perceived that way, I think the, the more there's an understanding of, of what this is all about. And it's basically about enhancement, right? So an artist can have a vision. You can have a song. It can be brilliant. But if no one's there to help you maximize that song to its fullest potential, i.e. get it to its fullest bandwidth, the, the fullest market that it can reach, get it fully to scale. And it takes about 18 months, right? And so having someone work on your behalf for 18 months, whether that be a record label where you're publishing it in-house, you know, by design, so to speak, um, or you're working independently with a boutique like a Waves Manufacturing Publishing Company, it's an opportunity for you to really outsource the business of music business so you can focus on the music, but understanding that as an artist, there's no escape. You, you have to be immersed in the knowledge of music business, and if you don't have a, a manager or a friend or someone that is walking you through this process, I mean, you, you might as well just, it, it's a hobby. It's not a business for you. And I think that's the number one thing to kind of understand about music publishing is like, yeah, if you're in this at all, 
you know, to make money and you're not just thinking about the front end. How do I make money from shows? How do I make money from performance, et cetera? Anything behind the scenes, you know, it makes sense to kind of outsource it if you don't have a heavy team behind you, you're not signed to a label and you kind of want to just focus in on the music. Yeah. Partner with a ways manufacturer and publishing company, because what they're there for is, you know, not to exploit you, but again, make sure that anything that's a part of your catalog or anything that you're producing is, is maximized to its fullest potential. And that's not just about like, again, reach on the, you know, kind of mechanical royalty side, right. Focused in on the, where the streaming's happening, the vinyls, the, you know, CDs. I know there's still a handful of them out there. Like wherever that may exist within the world, that that's one hand of it, but also the other side of, you know, kind of being on the performance side of that, you know, as a songwriter, as a producer, et cetera, you, you really got to be immersed in this world to understand how it's going to impact what you're receiving on the revenue side. And so, you know, I'm just proud of, of Dave's journey because he's been fully a part of it as an artist, right? Like not just focused in on what does it mean to be on the performance side, on, on the mechanical side, but what does it also look like to be, you know, a part of the creative design of a, a marketing plan? What does it mean to ensure that an artist understands that something down to an album cover is worthy of being copywritten, right? And, and all of these type of lessons, no one's going to walk you through it as an artist, you know, you do kind of have to seek it out or they will come to you based on your numbers. But, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being niche enough and agile enough to be able to have a pulse on what's going on in culture and understand that no one can do this better than us in terms of, you know, not just who we're marketing towards, but understanding what it means to exploit a song and not an artist. Talk yo shit. Hustle, hustle, hustle. <laughs> Um, because I heard a little plug, like if you want, if you need a publishing call, five five five. Right. Shameless plug. If y'all need a, a raspy voice to hit somebody's intro <laughs> interludes, <laughs> I'm being that I got an agent. Don't y'all play yes. me, okay? I mean business. I got a voiceover agent, okay? How do you all capitalize now on this Grammy-nominated situation, which could potentially be a Grammy-winning situation by the time this episode comes out? Like, how do you capitalize on that and not necessarily get taken advantage of in future situations with other major um, artists? Absolutely. So there are a few things with that. I mean, you know, ultimately it's a, it becomes your elevator pitch. So, um, what it has already done, I have, as opposed to typically, you know, being pitched production from people in kind of remote spaces and, you know, which is a thing that's been going on for some time now, for a couple of years now, just, you know, tracks come my way and I kind of decide what to work with or what, what to bring other writers in on and whatnot. Now I'm being requested into rooms. Now I'm being, you know, asked, hey, is, you know, Dave available to come write on this record? Can Dave do this, this kind of writing? Can Dave do that kind of writing? Um, and so now I'm walking into rooms and people are essentially like, okay, you wrote for B. So whatever, whatever you say, like I trust, like I just, I, it, it's going to be good. And so what that does for our business is again, it's all about the catalog. So if I write for, you know, your favorite EDM producer, then waves manufacturing is controlling portion of something that again, may end up in a campaign may play, maybe in, in all the electric circus, uh, 
whatever whatever the festival is called, uh, the, the EDC festival or whatever, you know, all of those uh, massive festivals and things like that. And again, having records that are playing in places, you know, not just streaming, you know, there's, that, that, that's a route, but literally every other avenue for your records to be played earns more revenue than what streaming does. And so the more opportunities that, you know, you are demanded into the studio, that you are requested to work with other people, the more opportunities there are to expand the catalog. Yeah. Okay, so Dave's now written for Beyonce. His name is in rooms he hasn't walked into yet. Waves Manufacturing is now in a position to build such a curator roster. But some shit has usually happened prior to experiencing or tasting the fruits of your labor. I call it life interrupted moments, aka what the fuck just happened moment. Essentially, lived experiences that cause us to course correct in our life journeys. What was your life interrupted moment, personally or professionally? I'll go personal. I would say, um, this is going to be kind of cliche, but getting married was probably one of the biggest course corrections that has led to this in every, I mean, in every way. Um, and so, for one... Uh, I was in a rap group again, we collaborated, you know, and for years. And so there was some time where basically, you know, we all started kind of moving around and, you know, different priorities, different places and spaces. And, you know, we made really dope music in this group. And I think that everybody who was aware of what we were doing was aware of the talent, but we were not aware of at the time, the steps the budgeting, the business, and just all of those different elements that, you know, take what we were doing specifically to the next level. And so within that, it was also kind of a, you know, a bit of a niche, you know, very much, you know, mid twenties kind of, you know, toxic young male, you know, POVs, that kind of thing. Um, so not necessarily breaking the mold, but we were definitely doing some innovative things in terms of how we crafted it. And when I got married, at some point, my wife says to me, after going to one of our shows, she's just like, hey, you know, I love what you do. I love your music, but I need something I can dance to. And I need something that, like, won't, ha like, you know, disrespect, like, my friends or me or, like, you know, just be a bad reflection on your kids or, you know, like, I need some stuff that, like, I can really, like, champion and, like, you know, wave the flag for and, like, be, you know, out, out front row behind. And so... Around that same time, Sam, who is the other half of Sam O.B., who's the other half of Dave and Sam, had this, you know, hey, I got this novel idea. You're from Chicago. I've heard you freestyle over dance at dance music tempos. Let's let's do hip house. Like I'm going to produce some Chicago and Chicago house inspired records. And I just want you to do your thing and we'll figure it out. And that we're talking at this point almost 10 years ago. Um, but that change like that shift that intention of okay make make the women dance while still not embarrassing my kids while still <laughs> while right. still you know not disrespecting you know my in-laws and you know all the all of that that formula is why we're here you know that that formula is is I I largely believe, and that's again not to discredit what we were doing, you know, in the past, but it's to say that in terms of 
creating something that again, you know, it's all about demographics. And when you talk about publishing and about, you know, successful catalogs, it's really about how many demographics can you, can you get in front of? Not necessarily that you have to be a certain way or you have to fit a certain mold, but just how many demos can you get in front of? So the decision to not curse, you know, or at least not curse explicitly, um, in a lot of my, in my records these days, that decision in itself means that if I'm with a label, that label doesn't have to take money out of my budget to make clean versions of my records to get them to that other audience, or they don't have to make the decision of, we're just not going to do that because that's going to be time and money and effort. And there's just the whole, you know, kids just won't, won't, won't be parents won't play, you know, your music around their kids. It's just what it is. You know, little things like that just open up the demographic. And so by being able to have music that, you know, again, women could see themselves in and could enjoy and that, you know, the queer community could see themselves in and could enjoy and that connected us. You know, I'm, I'm very much me, you know, but I'm, I'm not too much at a party with anybody, you know, and, and I think just that objective has made my records able to play not just, you know, in bed style where they were thriving before uh, or in the south side of Chicago where they were thriving before, but literally around the world. And so, you know. People in the U.S. may not have known who Dave was, but my records were ringing out around the world for two and three years before B, you know, kept my kept, kept my verse, you know? Yeah. And, and so I think so much of that can be attributed to just that shift in perspective, uh, shift in intention. I just recently celebrated my fourth decade around the sun. I've had every Ooh. seven years of what the fuck just happened moment. So no need for me to dive into all that on the personal side. Around this time, you know, David reached back out, you know, and and he's been doing his things. Things were bubbling. And I think at the time he just needed that kind of trusted source to be able to at least ideate, talk about, you know, where he was as an artist and, and what he needed to manage and balance his life overall. And, you know, originally it was kind of in that management conversation. But, you know, fast forwarded to where he is now. I'm so happy a year later that, you know, the what the fuck happened moment was a year ago we were talking about waves as a concept and to see what it is growing into already in just that short yeah. amount of time is the what the fuck just happened moment and you know again a lot of that is credited to Dave's vision his uh, ability as an artist to be agile and be flexible and, and be willing to stand in spaces where other artists may not be um that that goes a long way right and I think that talks to his the longevity of his career because it's not like it just happened overnight it's not an overnight success story you know my hope is two years from now he's best new artist at the grammys but it's he's been around forever you get what i'm saying that that's the type of journey you want to mm -hmm. see but the what the fuck just happened moment is just knowing like to its core that you know just having a vision and sticking to it and then seeing it happen you know that that is the what the fuck right that's what we're all in it for ultimately is that payoff that moment and so you know i'm just kind of glad to be a part of it and and and, and really proud of, of of dave's work and his journey and and everyone that supported along the way you know obviously no one's an island but you know i know that brother's putting a lot of time and space to kind of hone in on who he is as an artist and as a man thank you brother Life is about seasons, and there are some that we can actually name. Probably a lot that we can actually name. Wrapping up our conversation, I asked Daryl and Dave to name the chapters of their lives before and after their life interrupted moment. Before that moment, it would have been the spook who sat by the door. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if you people don't me, know, like, I actually saw that on YouTube and I have the book and I didn't read the book yet. That's actually hilarious. Yo, yeah, I, I just, I have always been able to access the periphery, you know, of the, the, these very large and very pre prestigious places and spaces and as just, in a very unassuming way. And even if I'm not the focal point, even if I'm behind the lens, behind the camera, whatever it is, I've just kind of always believed in taking notes and just trying to get the game, you know, no matter what. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the sequel will be the spook who kicked in the door, but uh, the door away, it baby. could be that or uh, fill the dreams. Maybe you know, if you build it, they will come. You know, because I think that that's what I've seen now is that you know, literally just making things because they didn't exist, or making things because I felt like this is what I want to hear, or this is what the world could use, or whatever it may be, and just trusting that. You know, um, and people eventually come around to it, you know, across that 20 years, <laughs> you know, if you if you keep keep, you know, they will keep keep going. So, yeah, I think uh, before it would have been the road less traveled. I think, um, you know, the previous 20 years of my life, you know, is pretty much been rooted in finding myself in places and spaces that are, you know, kind of what I would refer to as a sweet spot. Right. Like there's not a lot of knees in there, meaning that as uh, at the time, relatively young black male. Um, you know, and still young, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying like, it was really about finding my space as a fundraiser, for example, it's it's a white woman's dominated field, you know, to have 20 years of credential in that space, uh, to be awarded in that space is unusual, and it'd be specific like nonprofit fundraising, right, so that is a field that's dominated by white women, you know, um, even down to my hobbies, right, like biking, hiking, all these things, like, it's just, uh, you know, you don't see traditionally, but well, now you do. But before it wasn't a traditional male black space. And, you know, I think as well, fast forwarding even to music publishing, you know, as we become executives in this space, what's super clear is that there aren't a lot of us at this table. And I think that, you know, again, my entire journey has been rooted about finding the road less travel and being able to stick with it. Um, and so as we think about, you know, ways manufacturing publishing company and the journey ahead, it's all about that. And then that goes right to kind of like to your question of what would it be now? It is exactly that catch the wave because the next journey of my life is all about, you know, kind of being in service to black artists and, and in a real rooted way of ensuring that they are enhancing, not just their brand, their reputations, the music, the content they're involved in, everything else under the sun, but more than that, um, ensuring that they're changing the trajectory of their own lives and that of their families you know, through their medium of music. So that that's what it's all about. Oh, I love that. The spook who sat by the damn door and who kicked in the door waving the phone. <laughs> I appreciate y'all for stopping by. Now, how can they find you online, which will also be in the show notes? You can find us online at wvzmfg.com and on most of the social platforms, Instagram and Twitter in particular, you'll find us at wvzmfg. And then as an artist, Dave Giles II, that's with two eyes on the end, Roman numeral style on all the platforms. Dave and Sam, Dave plus Sam, kind of like the 50s group, but you know, for the 99 and the 2000s. And yeah, you can find that on, on, on all platforms as Dave and Sam Music. Hearing their journey helped me feel affirmed in my redirected path from the music industry. As of this recording and this episode release, the Grammys haven't aired yet. But when they do, 
Make sure you're on the lookout for Dave Giles II being nominated for his work on Cozy. Just a reminder. <laughs> that actually happens to be my favorite track still. Yeah. Okay. Anywho, this episode was a preview of more to come in season four of Black and Nuanced. It feels so damn good to be back and I'm glad to grace the microphone again. While I'm working on new episodes for you, feel free to dig in the crates of past seasons, including one of my favorite episodes in season three called Love is the New Black, where we wax poetic about Beyonce's Blackest King on Disney+. Look at the stars aligning on the Beyonce tip. Also, seriously, it was a good episode and the most listened to. Anywho, shout out to my co-producer and editor, Wise Grisette of the Indie Creative Network. Cheers to a stronger and intentional season four, because just like Issa Rae said, I'm rooting for everybody black including my damn self. Peace.